This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey everybody, Matt Davis here. Before we get started, I want to let you know about a small way that you can help support the continued production of this podcast. On our website, brainpodcast.com, is a banner ad linking to Amazon. If you use that banner before making any of your normal purchases, Amazon will send us a small percentage. It's as simple as that. This will help offset some of the hosting and equipment costs. Thanks in advance for your support. We sincerely appreciate it. All right, enough logistics. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Sean Lockery, a professor at the University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon. He studies how the nervous system controls behavior in a simple model organism, the nematode worm C. elegans. These creatures are unique in that they are the only organisms for which we have a complete neural connectivity diagram. Dr. Lockery can exploit this diagram by tracking the activity of specific neurons during complex behavioral tasks. Besides his academic work, Dr. Lockery has a few hidden talents that I uncovered during the course of the interview. So let's get to it. So can you tell us about the model organism you work with? So we work on the nematode Cinerebditis elegans, and you could sort of think of it as the laboratory rat of nematodes. It was developed as, a, as an experimental system by Sidney Brenner in England many years ago, mainly to understand the genetics of development as the animal goes from an egg to a full, fully functional adult. But there's always been a strong interest in the nervous system. We like to use it as neuroscientists because it has one of the simplest nervous systems known to science, and the nervous system has been completely reconstructed, the level uh, of the electron microscope. They are wily little creatures. They, they live in rotting vegetable material. They eat bacteria for a living, and they're capable of complex behaviors, including learning of five or six different types, Pavlovian learning. So if I wanted to go find somewhere, would I go mm. to, to hunt up somewhere? An orchard somewhere. Oh, yeah. For this particular species, an orchard, yep. You said that there's sort of a complete wiring diagram mm -hmm. of the nervous system. What can we do with that? What kind of questions can we ask? Well, that's a very topical question these days because the uh, National Institutes of Health, the uh, suggestion of the Obama administration has launched a program to quote-unquote map the activity of the brain, which involves, in large part, making a map of its connectivity. In the nematode, we've had this connectivity, this level of connectivity detail for a really, really long time. There are things you can do with it and things you can't. So one thing that you certainly can do with it is make guesses as to how the nervous system might function, and it's a wonderful mechanism for the generation of hypotheses. What you can't do is understand how it works just by looking at the diagram. What are some of the limitations or frustrations working with the C. elegans? Hmm. Well, let's see. So um, I'm not used to talking about limitations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can do everything. Well, no, we write, you know, um, I'm so focused on getting grants to support research and focus on its strengths. Okay, so uh, one of its central limitations as far as biomedical research goes is it's not a person. That having been said, um, that having been said, uh, something like 50% uh, of all genes that have human genes that have so far been associated with diseases are, are, are found in, in, in the nematode nervous system. And in cases where the genes are not found, you can, you can take the human gene 
and put it into the nematode and create a nematode model. So for example, for Huntington's disease, that's our, and for Alzheimer's disease, you can actually make some progress understanding how those diseases progress by creating nematodes that have the proteins that produce those diseases. So yeah, so it's not a human, I think is a problem, you know, and then some of its, some of its weaknesses are its strengths. So it's really, really small, but that's why we were able to, or not we, but uh, my colleagues in the field were able to reconstruct the nervous system at the EM level. And how has technology helped work with the organism? Has there been new devices to help manipulate or, or record them? And how does that happen? Yeah, very much that? so. So in addition to the, um, to the wonderful techniques that are now driving the renaissance of systems neuroscience, notably the uh, ability to engineer the animals so that you can turn neurons on and off with light and know which neurons you're affecting. The nematode uh, a technology that was developed initially for chemists and chemistry called soft lithography microfluidics is revolutionizing how we study the organism. Um, let me tell you what I mean by microfluidics. Yeah. It's, it's a term that's used to describe devices uh, that control fluid flow on the scale of tens to hundredths of a millimeter. And at this spatial scale, Fluid flow is completely different from what we're used to in the macroscopic world. You can imagine water flowing through these microfluidic channels is uh, it's like honey flowing through household plumbing. So there's no turbulence, and uh, these devices are transparent. They allow oxygen to go in and out, so you can put animals in there. And in fact, the material that it's, that these devices are made of is the same material that contact lenses are made of, which you know breathe. Anyway, some, some years ago, uh, we and others discovered that nematodes fit perfectly in these channels, and you're limited only by your imagination in the kinds of devices that you make. So we have made, we and others have made devices uh, that mimic the soil. So we have artificial dirt, we call it. Uh, we've made devices that allow you to control the amplitude and wavelength of the snake-like locomotion that nematodes do. And we've even made a device that allows you to record electrical activity of the nematode throat. And we're, uh, we've started a company to, um, to commercialize this device for uh, helping the discovery of new anti-nematode drugs, but also compounds that uh, promote health span in, in humans. Nematode is a, is a powerful experimental model for aging. So in terms of the main projects in your lab right now, what specific questions are you trying to get at? using these tools that we've sort of Yeah, so the overall question my lab studies is is the question of how, how brains control behavior. And uh, over the years, we've been <coughs> focusing on navigation behavior, that is, how do the animals find their way in the world. We've been studying a behavior called chemotaxis, which is the ability to find the source of a taste or smell. The nematodes do it in, in a somewhat in a interesting way in that, um, and the analogy I like to draw is imagine that you were dropped off in a, in a yeah, in an unknown neighborhood in a strange city and you're blindfolded, hopefully there wasn't too much traffic around, and, and you were asked to find the nearest pizza restaurant. So you dropped down in Little Italy in Boston or whatever. And, um, and you don't have your smartphone on. And you don't, well, you, yeah, and you're blindfolded anyway, yeah. so you couldn't see it. Um, okay. And uh, imagine how you might sniff your way to finding the, the pizza restaurant. And if you think about it for a minute, what you realize is that you would probably take a sniff and then walk a little bit and uh, sniff again. And if the smell is stronger, you continue in that direction. The smell is weaker, you'd probably pick a new direction. And you're forced to do that because you can't really tell the difference in the strength of the smell between one nostril and the other. So you're taking one-dimensional information, the, the uh, strength of the smell, and using it to solve a two-dimensional problem, which is spatial navigation you know, in the city to find, a, to find the restaurant. And then we also are, have a new project to study how the nematodes um, understand price and value and make decisions uh, based on their assessment of 
of those uh, properties of food. So what uh, would that type of experiment look like? That sounds very interesting. Yeah, so this, this species is born naive in terms of which types of bacteria it will prefer to eat. And it's been shown in the laboratory by colleagues of mine that within a day they learn to prefer those species of bacteria that they grow better on. So somehow they can tell that they, they do better on wholesome vegetables and on junk food. And what we've been able to do is create microfluidic devices that allow them allow us to present them the nematode with a choice between food that they really like and food that they prefer less, but at different prices. So we can we can make the nematode actually choose the, the mediocre food by making it really cheap relative to the food it actually prefers. And there are all kinds of economic theories for human behavior that, that, um, that exist to help explain those kinds of outcomes. And we're finding ways to understand how the nematode brain calculates those value-price relationships. So how do you, in your lab, link the activity in neurons to behavior? Good question. That's the holy grail experiment in, in neuroscience is to be able to record from a neuron, know which neuron you're recording from, and to do it um, in an animal's unrestrained and going about its normal daily activities. And so we and others have, have developed instrumentation that allows us to do that. We have a, um, a fancy microscope uh, with a movable microscope stage and some electronics that instantly find uh, where the neuron that we want to follow is in the field of view and, and then compensate for the motion of the nematode so that neuron stays in the field of view while the nematode is moving rather rapidly across the substrate and allows us to, at the same time, record the behavior of the animal. And from the amount of light we get from the neuron that we're tracking, we can infer its relative level of activity. Is there some emerging technologies slash trends in neuroscience that you think will uh, make an impact on the, your research in the near future? Or I'm hesitating because um, uh, the last... Ten years or so uh, have have seen an amazing uh, expansion of the kinds of technologies that are available to neuroscientists trying to understand how, how behavior works. Um, and um, in some respects, we've got what we need now, almost. I and mean, we've got the basics. Um, I, I alluded earlier in the interview to um, the Evolve Brain Initiative, and um, the main focus of that is to is to refine these these technologies. And to improve them for understanding the human brain. Um, the nematode, we, you know, yes, okay, there is one thing, yes, mm -hmm. there is one thing we really want, um, and we're close to getting it. And that is, um, I mentioned being able to record the activity level of a neuron uh, by means of how much light was coming from it. And uh, right now, the, the measurement of activity is rather crude. It has to do with concentration of calcium ions that are inside the neuron and we know from experiments that that calcium the level of calcium tells you uh, how active the neuron is but it's not a direct measure of activity um, the currency of neuronal computation is not calcium but voltage um, we are we've been waiting for many years for uh, probes uh, that who, who uh, that change the amount of light they emit according to um, the voltage within the neuron and that would get us much closer to the actual um, means by which the, the, the neurons compute. And this is true not just for nematodes, but, but all, all, all nervous systems. Has there ever been a moment in the lab where you encountered a result that left you really puzzled, but then kind of upon further investigation, you thought, oh, this is something like really cool, like sort of an accidental result? 
Well, it seems like it happens. <laughs> yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> That's um, the I'm, basic tenet of, of uh, science. You know, I think it was um, Lance Pauling who said, "Chance favors the prepared mind." I mean, there's certainly been aha moments. Most of the most of the work that we do involves experiments that are motivated by theories we have, and, and oftentimes the theories are can be formalized mathematically. And one of the theories that we came up with suggested that what looks like normal smooth movement in the nematode is actually broken up by lots of little moments when the nematode is stationary, <clears throat> and um, and well, it doesn't sound like much to to to, to but um, um, the, the fact that we actually predicted the existence of those uh, events that were actually too brief to to see by eye, and predicted it just from sitting around thinking hard, uh, hmm. was a very uh, inspiring moment for me. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? How is it satisfying? Yeah, you know, it's a it's it's a great life. I um, there was a there was a time when I wanted to be an artist, not a scientist. And uh, I remember when I got my first faculty position. In 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 artists' terms, it's like someone giving you a studio, and all the materials you could ever want to make whatever art you wanted. Because in order to get a scientific lab going at a university, you have to buy equipment. Um, it's not an infinite infinite uh, uh, budget, of course, but. Um, but it's like building a studio and then um, inviting apprentices to come in and, and help you make art, except for instead of making art, we're making science. But actually, there are some very strong, I, you know, since I was trained in, in the arts as well, there's some very strong parallels in the, in, um, in the skills it takes to formulate a, a good problem and then solve it. People often don't realize this, but, but uh, much, of, much of the training in the, in the visual arts is, is, is problem solving, but solving problems that you yourself create. In many respects, choosing a scientific project is like um, choosing a problem, creating a problem, and then, and then solving it. And if you're good, you're, you're, you're able to choose problems for which the results will be general and, and useful to coming generations, I guess you could say. Were you able to um, hold on to some of your artistic outlet as you continued on your career yeah, as a scientist? A, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, so I was. I told you a little bit ago about the microfluidic devices, um, and I. Um, <clears throat> I know I, I spent a lot of time drawing these things. Uh, you, you, it's computer drawing, but it's still drawing, and um, I feel the same sense of absorption that I used to feel doing sculpture or, or or drawing of a kind of fine art nature. So that's that's there for sure. And uh, in terms of uh, hobbies and interests outside of neuroscience. Even not directly related. What do you? What else oh yes, well I'm, I have a dirty little secret. Oh yeah, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I um, I uh, I'm a fiddle player, and oh. um, I play um, Appalachian mountain music. Some people call it old time music, and uh, I have a band that's been together for over ten years now. We call the Eugene City Barnstormers, and um, we, we play we play uh, square dances and contra dances up and down the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Do you do you see that as sort of complementary to what you do, or is it set or sort of an escape from? Everything? Ah, good question. It's a little of both. Um, it's certainly nice to forget about the stresses of academic life. Um, there's a. Um, I'm not sure this is going to make sense to everyone, but there's a certain a certain self irony and sense of humor that that being a musician seems to uh, promote. And um, it leads to a sense of humility and also um, a willingness to 
do something wacky just because you could. And I'd like to think that some of the innovative science uh, I've been able to do over the last couple of decades um, is is nourished by cutting loose every once in a while and playing music and just being wacky. Awesome. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about what you've learned over the years? Yeah, I think just like to say about how um, I think there's often a misconception about about what science is and how it progresses. And uh, in the popular press, people talk about science. Scientists proved X or they proved Y, and um, it doesn't really work that way. I like to think of it um, as a process of successive approximations to the truth. You never really prove anything. You can disprove things, you never really prove anything. Um, and, and, so, and so that it's important for scientists to have humility towards what they do. It's also important for the public not to overinterpret um, or to be wary of the, of, the, of the media's tendency to overinterpret what scientists are actually saying. Um, and the other thing I'd like to say is that um, although science can seem complicated and inaccessible, um, at, at the most fundamental level, it's nothing more than common sense writ large. I think that's a good way to go on. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Very nice message. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.